Today is the third and last in our short series on coming out of Egypt as a personal paradigm for spiritual growth. And today we're going to uh, focus on two ideas. And this is something that we've done many times before in different contexts where you can take a number or a letter or a word or an idea and follow it through the Torah in order to connect the dots to get all this hidden meaning. So we're going to do two things with the paradigm of coming out of Egypt today. We're going to work with two numbers, the number 5 and the number 50. And we're going to see its connection to coming out of Egypt. And then we're going to take a theme where you can, you can take a, an idea, concept, theme, and also run it, as it were, through the entire Torah to see how everything connects up. So the thing that we're going to take as far as coming out of Egypt is you'd see it in Mitzrayim as a paradigm for birth. A birthing paradigm. Okay, so we'll start with the, the two numbers. And we'll start with the number five, which we already mentioned that on Pesach night, we drink four cups of wine, but there is a fifth cup, the cup of Eliyahu, that is on the table. And this corresponds to what are called the four, or really five expressions of redemption that are connected with coming out of Egypt, and that's what we learned in the first class. <coughs> the Hotseiti, the Hitzalti, the Gaalti, the Lakachti, the Hebeti. I will save you, I will take you out, I will save you, I will redeem you, I will take you to me, and I will bring you into the land. So those five verbs are called the five expressions of redemption. And in the first class we learned all the different meanings as far as a, a psychological emotional, spiritual paradigm for, for growth. But we're going to expand on that a, a bit today. And we're going to see that the number 5 and the number 50 come up over and over again when talking about Egypt in many, many different con uh, contexts. So the first thing we did already is we connected the five expressions of redemption with the five levels of soul. And we saw as a personal paradigm that the whole story from a historical point of view can be translated into instruction for different levels of the soul to come out of Egypt. We're not going to go back over that, but I'm just mentioning that because that's a very important five as has to do with the story of Egypt. But we see another very important connection is that we saw that the first mitzvah that was given to the Jewish people was HaChodesh HaZelachem. This is the first of the months of the year. And we learned that this makes Nisan the first of the months and also establishes 
all of the wisdom surrounding the Jewish calendar. According to the Sefer Yitzirah, each month has a sense that is associated with it. Each month has many different things associated with it. One of them is a sense. Of the twelve senses, you have the five physical senses that we usually think of when you say the word is sense. But there's an additional seven. The sense for the month of Nisan, which is the month of coming out of Egypt, is the sense of speech. And this is an, an entire uh, discussion in of itself of the connection of speech with Nisan. But for our purposes, we'll just mention a few things. Is that I once learned a very simple definition, and I might have given it over at some point, from Rav Ginsburg as to what is freedom and redemption in a personal sense and what is exile and slavery in a personal sense okay it's true you, you, you ask a hundred people you could get a hundred definitions and they probably would all be good but he said something that it just stayed with me he said very simply he said redemption on a personal level, is the ability to express oneself. And slavery and exile is the inability to express oneself. So I think everyone can translate that to their own lives as to when, <clears throat> when a person feels that they can express themselves to other people, they can express their emotions, they can express their needs, they can express their talents. That feels redemptive. A person feels free. And the opposite is just as true. When you can't express yourself in a relationship or in a job or your talents are not being used or you, you're in emotional turmoil and you don't know how to express it, you can't get a, a handle on what is bothering you, that's exile. The other definition that always stuck with me was from Rav Shlomo. And he said like this, he said, do you know what freedom is? And what I'm going to say is what he said, but it could also be translated into many, many different examples. But the way he said it, that I heard it, he said, yes, uh, yesterday you were sad. Last month you were sad. Two minutes ago you were sad. Freedom is one minute from now I do not have to be sad. He said, that's what freedom is. That also just stuck with me. Just stuck with me. So the, Very much in our hands. Yes. Yeah. So here the sense of speech represents the sense of self-expression, of being able to express oneself. And there are many, many connections between speech and malchut.
between kingship. Because what is the tribe that is connected with Nisan? Is Yehuda. And from Yehuda come the kings. And there are many, many different verses and, and, and Torahs connecting the power of the king with the power of speech. That's, that's the manifestation of the authority of the king is in his ability to decree and have it be fulfilled. Or in the, in the case of David and Melech, the ability to express himself in the Psalms. You wanted to say something? Yeah, is there any reason why uh, Yehuda is uh, the tribe of Nisan? I would think maybe Levi would be with Moshe and Aharon and Miriam would be Nisan. And this is what Sefer Yitzira, because Nisan, Nisan is a month of redemption, of Geula, of kingship, of that whole energy, Mashiach. That whole energy is really very much Yehuda energy. Yehuda, Yehuda energy. The way we express ourselves in Pesach is the Haggadah. And what does Haggadah mean? To, to tell. To tell the story. And so therefore, the Haggadah becomes a, a channel for our own self-expression of our faith. Because when we sit at the Seder table, there probably is maybe no other time in the year that we, we feel so connected to our tradition. So you sit down with all the symbols and then it immediately draws up every Seder that you've been at. It's almost inevitable that you start remembering all the seders, and then you realize that, that the seder is an unbroken link all the way back to the actual event. Doesn't, it doesn't mean that they said the Haggadah every year. The Haggadah most likely is from about 2,000 years ago. But the telling of the story is one of the 613 mitzvahs. So the telling of the story and eating of the matzah and the moror and the korban pesach, that goes all the way back. And so the Haggadah means agid, and it begins with what letter? Hey. Which is also interesting that the fifth part of the Haggadah, everyone knows it does. Two opinions, either 14 or 15 steps to the Haggadah. Kabbalah usually talks about 15, because Motsi Matzah, some people come as one and some people come as two. But before that, everyone agrees that the fifth part of the Haggadah is, begins Ha Lachma. And the word Ha is the letter He. It's actually written as He Lachma. And it is the fifth part, and He is five. And that is when we tell the story. The actual, the longest part of the whole Seder is the fifth part. And that's when we actually fulfill the, the, the mitzvah of the, of the night to tell the story. And these all connect back to the five levels of soul. 
all connect back to the five levels of soul and how each level of soul needs to express itself. Now we're jumping to 50. And it's said in, in, in Kabbalah, any number, there's two, not versions, but two manifestations, either a number squared or a number times 10 is considered a full manifestation of that number. So, 10 times 5 is 50. And we'll see some beautiful connections with 50 and coming out of Mitzrayim and, and personal growth. So the first one is the amazing uh, phenomenon that the term in the, in the Torah, in the five books of Moshe, Yitziat Mitzrayim appears exactly 50 times. Where? In the Chumash. In the Chumash. The phrase Yitziat Mitzrayim coming out of Egypt appears 50 times. And this is very, very connected to the obvious other 50s that we received the Torah 50 days after coming out of Mitzrayim. Especially after counting the Omer, 7 times 7, and the 50th is Shavuos. And we already mentioned last week that the uh, crucial importance of connecting those two dates together. In other words, the, the receiving of the Torah 50 days later is the purpose of coming out of Egypt. We discussed a little bit last week different ideas about freedom and everyone mentioned that it's not just to be free to do whatever we want the whole thing is from the moment we left Egypt we were on our way to Sinai it wasn't like it just happened that way it was that was very clear and we mentioned that when Moshe stood at the burning bush it was at at Mount Sinai and God said this will be a sign to you that when you come out of Egypt, you will come and worship me at this mountain. So it was already like in the plan. So the fact that it says you see it in Mitzrayim 50 times is a, a very strong allusion to like no matter which way you're going, right, it all leads to Sinai. From a Jewish point of view, that's what freedom is all about. However you want to define it, whichever direction you're going, straight line, circles, triangles, that's where it's all leading to. It's all leading to the receiving of the Torah sign, like 50 50 days later. Now there's two other connections with 50 that are very fascinating. One, especially for a women's group, is the concept that there are 50 gates of understanding. Chamishim Sha'arei Bima. 50 gates of understanding. 40 and 50 are sometimes connected with Bima, but sometimes 40 is connected with, with wisdom because it, it's connect, 40 is connected to the Mem, and the Mem is water, and the water is actually connected to uh, both Chachma and Bina. And Chachma, it says, Nachal Novea Mikor Chachma, a river 
flowing from its source of wisdom. But then you have, uh, as we're going to see very shortly, you have the men as 40 is connected to the, to the 40 weeks of pregnancy and, and the womb. Even the shape of the men is said to look like a womb. So, like most things, you, you have what's called inter-inclusion. Sometimes you can look at the 40 as, as male and wisdom. Sometimes you can look at it as female and understanding. But for the, the 50 gates of understanding are always connected to Bina. And Rav Ginsburg ex- explained that the word Sha'arim, gates, is connected to the root lisha'er, means to estimate, means to to judge and estimate, but with, in a sense, a woman's ability of understanding. Like it says in the Gemara, yeah, yeah. And so it's explained in Eshet Chayel when it says, "Noda b'sha'arim ba'ala." Her husband is known in the gates. It's explained in Kabbalah. The husband is Hashem. Hashem is known through these fifty gates of understanding. That's how we come to understand Hashem. So this is very connected to counting the Omer. Because what are we doing during the Omer? We are, in a sense, combining Hasan and Gevura and Teferet and Netzach and Hod. All the different Sfirot were in combinations. And what are we doing? We're applying that to our own personal growth. And so every day of the 50, we're 49 days leading to the 50th day, we're estimating. That's what it said, that each day of the Omer is, in a sense, climbing a ladder of these 50 gates of understanding, where we exchange a level of impurity for a level of purity. And that we do this through, really, introspection. So therefore, the, the coming out of Egypt, even though it happened, let's say, in, in like a flash, the matzah, we didn't even have a time for the matzah to rise, but to get to Sinai, there's a lot of self-reflection and introspection and growth and change and adaptation and everything that goes along with it. So this is part of the paradigm of coming out of Egypt. And we mentioned this last week with the uh, coming to the sea. That we come out of Egypt and we're like, ah, home free, that's it. And then we look around seven days later and Paro is chasing us and we're, we're caught at the sea. So we learn that sometimes freedom does happen in a split second. Maybe we, we contemplate a certain problem or we face a certain obstacle for years and we struggle with it and sometimes in a moment 
we can just break through. And we really do break through, but then we see it's not always like totally clean. Right? There's always repercussions that we still usually have to deal with. doesn't mean that we have to go back to Egypt, but it's just that it's not always such a clean break. We made it, but then sometimes we have to go through the sea again, and then we learn, and again, <laughs> and again, and again, and again. Whose story is this? It's our story. It's not they got to such a high level, and then they fell back. Because we all know ourselves very well, that we do, we make tremendous strides, and then we fall back. And then we make other strides, and we fall back. And so it's, to me, it's not such a, it's a wonder. To me, it's, it's, it's like very, very human, and very, very real. But, but it doesn't take away from our successes. It doesn't take away from our, our, uh, our advances spiritually. And this is something we learned in, in the reincarnation that, that even though a person might reach a very high level and then fall, but it doesn't mean that everything is wiped out. It doesn't mean that everything is wiped out. That particular needs to be fixed. And it could be a glaring mistake or, or whatever. It has to be dealt with, but it doesn't mean like, that the person isn't worth anything anymore. Do you want to hear a beautiful connection? Mm-hmm. So 50 is which letter? None. None. So we're told, what, what does the nun represent? So what's brought down is an ashray. If, if anyone hasn't noticed, ashray is according to the Aleph Bet. It mm-hmm. has all the letters of the Aleph Bet except one. Mm-hmm. I mean, as far as the first letter of, of each verse. Nun. Skips over the nun. So the Gemara asks, why? It says, because David and Melech didn't want to start a verse with the letter nun, which represents nefila, hmm. falling. So but how did he get it in? What's the next one? Next letter after nun is samach. Samech Hashem l'kol So he... God props up all those who have fallen down, supports all those who have fallen down. So here, according to what everyone said, the nun, as 50, represents top of the mountain, Mount Sinai, but there's an inevitable fall. There's an inevitable fall built into the system. Built into the system. And this is a little bit of an aside. This is one of my favorite Torahs. Is one of the mitzvahs in the Torahs to build a guardrail around the roof of a new home. And the Torah says, so there will not be blood on your house when the fallen one (coughs) falls from the roof. So Rashi asks, what's this language, the fallen one falls? 
it's like a double language it's very redundant it, it doesn't doesn't work so great grammatically what does it mean the fallen one falls so Rashi says that this person is destined to fall from your roof but you should no excuse me he's destined Does he fall, fall from a roof but you should be careful that it's not your roof because good things happen through the agency of good people and bad things happen through the agency of bad people so that's I mean very fascinating stuff so uh, the, the Sonoma Rebbe explains that what is this guardrail around a new roof we always read this in the month of Elo leading up to Rosh Hashanah so he said the new house is a new year mm-hmm. and the guardrail is that when that's what we're talking about when we elevate ourselves to prayer and hearing the shofar and slichot and shuva like we go up to the roof the roof is a high point but you have to make a guardrail or you're going to fall off meaning you have to have some kind of mechanism if you do tshuva and, and part of your tshuva is I'm going to do X that's what I'm going to do because I haven't been doing it I'm now going to do X so the guardrail is make a plan to actually do X because if you don't you will fall off the roof two days later oh I I, I don't know if I could really do that okay I, I, in the moment I thought I could do it if you don't build a guardrail so Rob Ginsburg has an amazing Torah he explains he brings the whole incident of David and Bathsheba which happens where? up on the roof and he brings a few other examples from Psalms where David says that he goes up to the roof so Rav Ginsburg says like this he says when you go up to the roof which means when you reach this high point you are destined to fall off like we're talking about like that's just the way of the world it, but it doesn't mean that, like, okay, it's all for fallen. But you're going to fall off the roof. If you go, go way up on the roof, you're going to fall off. He says, so what can you do about this? So he said like this. He said, what you do is you orchestrate your own fall. How? Through humbleness he said when you go up to the roof when you reach a spiritual high you break through you achieve something if at that moment there's some amount of ego there you are destined to fall off the roof so what can you do about it if you can maintain an attitude of humbleness then you orchestrate your own fall 
Mm. You bring yourself down. Yeah, you, you orchestrate your own fall, and through that, it's as if you stay on the roof. Mm. That's how you can stay up on the roof, is by, you have to fall. Then you have to fall. But if you orchestrate your own fall through humbleness, then you can maintain staying up on the roof. I, thought, I don't know. That, you know, there's certain Tories that just like, like get into you. Yeah. It's just like, because we all have this, I would call it even a problem, is uh, sometimes there is a fear of getting too high. Because you know it's like you're going to fall. So you tell yourself, well, therefore I shouldn't get so high because I don't want to fall. And therefore, we always keep very close control of our soul's desire to fly. We want to keep it out of almost self-preservation. But here's like an, like an Eitzah of how to... Like David and Malach says he's like a bird up on the roof. How you can be a bird up on the roof and not afraid to fall. Yeah, so you want to say something? Oh, in the 12-step language, you talk about falling off the wagon hmm. when you fail to maintain mm-hmm. your resolutions. And um, I was thinking about the phrase... Um, Harachaman huyakimanu at sukat David hano falat. Yes. What does that mean? We say that during sukkahs, during the benching. Um, the merciful one, please uh, reestablish the fallen sukkah of David, which means like the destruction of the temple. The exile, the <coughs> everything that, that that represents. But you're right. It's called uh, mm-hmm. Sukkot And in fact, to even go so further, the opposite of that. Uh, why he didn't want the letter Nun in Parakasuk and Right. So it goes even farther. Is that in in the Gemara, David slash Mashiach mm-hmm. is called a Nethel. Mm. A miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Why? Is because according to the midrash, David had no years of his own life, and it says that Adam. Remember that Arizal said Adam. The three letters of Adam: Aleph is for Adam, the Dalit is for David, and the Mem is for Mashiach. Because all of history is. Uh, coalesced in the name Adam. Adam looks and he sees David. And he sees that he has no apportioned time in this world. He sees the soul of David. And so he donates 70 years from his life. That Adam was supposed, according to the Midrash, was supposed to live to a thousand. And he dies at 930. And David lives 70 years. And so therefore, it's said that, that David's experience in this world is that every, at every moment, he, he how is it like you're breathing in and out, he, he, he kind of felt like this could be the last moment. Mm-hmm. Because he had this 
existential feeling, I have no time here. Obviously, it's very symbolic language here. But what we're explaining, I mean, I have, I've experienced this at different times. I can't, I, I don't feel it all the time. But there are, there are times where you just feel like, like, what am I doing here? Like, I'm just, I'm not comfortable in this world. I'm not comfortable in my body. Like, like where do I belong? Who am I? So we're told that David lived in this state of ambivalence, spiritual ambivalence, and therefore, that's why his praises could be so exalted. Because when he did feel at home in this world, he was like so thankful. He was so grateful because he knew that other feeling. And so therefore, when his praises flowed out, they just—they just totally, totally expressed his true thankfulness. It goes along with what he did with Pacheco, because someone who has a limited time and finds love—it's like grab it now. It may never come. You're right. This is connected to his falling off the roof. This—this was his falling off the roof. Is. Okay, that was, that was an aside. I didn't mean to get into that so so deeply, but translating this as a personal paradigm is very important because we discussed last week of being realistic with the realities of life. If you remember, we talked about the goal of peace. And is it something that we can just get there and you just stay there? And we said it's, 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 not, it's not realistic. It's, it's not that we shouldn't strive for peace. And we do, every Shabbos is like... But to have this unrealistic idea that we can maintain this spiritual bubble is not, is not really reality. So this... Part of freedom is understanding the fall and not being terrified of it and not being uh, afraid to push forward. I think it's a very, very real thing for a lot of people, the, the fear to let their neshama really fly. I really think that there's this is a real a real thing for a lot of people is and it's very unconscious why we're afraid of that but I think if we could express it in words is is because we've all gotten up there and we've all fallen and it really hurts to fall it really hurts to fall so unconsciously it's like well, I don't know if I want to like really let my neshama go and experience it because look what's going to ha- look what's going to happen to me. It's not like we say that to ourselves consciously, but I think there's a there's an unconscious fear there. Okay, so now, so Laura, you're, you're right on time because now we're going to switch gears here and. 
But you know, I have to mention one other thing that I'll just mention and move on. Also, a very, very fascinating thing is that in the book of Eov, at the end of the book of Eov, after all of his questioning and uh, introspection and uh, doubts, that God presents him with 50 questions. He poses 50 questions to him. And they're all, the, they're all connected to, you've just questioned me. Now let me ask you. To Eov, to Job. To Job. And basically there are, do you understand anything about how the world is really running? And at the end of the 50 questions, strangely enough, Eo finds a certain amount of comfort in the simple fact that he now realizes that he can't understand everything. As long as he thought he could understand anything, he was plagued that he didn't understand. (laughs) But then God poses 50 questions, and he's like, he's like awed by what he doesn't know. So this is very connected to what's called the 50th gate. We're told that Moshe Rabbeinu went through 49 gates of understanding that we mentioned. And there are different versions of did he go through the 50th? And if so, what they were. So some say when he died by the kiss of God, he entered into the 50th. 50th gate. And other people like Rebbe Nachman connect this 50th gate with um, the the way he puts it is the greatest knowledge is that I don't know. The greatest knowledge is to acknowledge what I don't know. So this is also connected to in a sense a personal paradigm of freedom because in an ideal world we would think we're free that means we probably understand everything now no, not necessarily not necessarily at all but, but there is a certain freedom that comes with a humble accepting that I, I, I'm not going to understand everything And therefore, that opens up a place of freedom where I can kind of like get on with things and not be blocked by being plagued because I don't understand something. Okay, so now we're going to look at a different paradigm, which we call the birthing paradigm that's connected with coming out of Egypt. And we're going to give four or five different versions to the same events. As we've said many times, Shivim Panim Torah, 70 faces to the Torah. Well, that means you look at the same verse, the same story, and you just turn the, uh, the, the spectrum and you get a different, uh, different view of it turn the crystal and you get a different 
perspective or the like. So first of all, if you look at the word Torah, I'm sure you're going to love this, that usually we're told, what does Torah mean as, as a word? It's from the root Hora'ah, which means instruction. It means instruction. It's also from the root to be pregnant. To be pregnant. And this is a beautiful understanding of, of Torah. That the, the way we say it in English is that Torah is pregnant with meaning. But we're told that that's actually a deeper meaning of what Torah is. And ending with a hey makes it a feminine word. It is a feminine word. So, without Aleph is Horin, which is a parent. <laughs> ah, okay. Horin. Horin. Right, a parent. Which is obviously connected to pregnancy. <laughs> and instruction. So this goes along with a, a very, very beautiful custom that when a woman is in labor, there is a custom to read the 20th Psalm which we say most days between Ashrei and Ubalat Sion, David. Why? Because it has exactly 70 words. Mm. It's 70 words. And the Gemara says that a deer does not give birth until it has cried out 70 times. Mm. So all of these are, are connected. For our purpose, though, there's one other 70 that this is very connected to, the 70 souls that go down to Egypt. So this, this is like the first thing that we said, is the whole story of going, and we use the word again, down, nafal, going down to Egypt, is the paradigm of the soul coming down into the body. So the 70 souls that go down to Mitzrayim become symbolic of every soul coming down into the narrow place of Egypt, which is this world, and a physical body. Yeah. And the word for labor contractions is Sirim Mitzrayim. Ah, okay. Sirei Leida. Exactly. We'll get into that. Exactly. So, so that we'll, we'll look at four stages in here. That the slavery in Egypt is like the fetus in the womb. In other words, we say many, many times that we became a people in this whole experience. Is Remember, a number of times it says, no matter how much they enslaved us, we multiplied and, and, um, and were fruitful. And in fact, at one place it says, like, according to how much we were enslaved, that's how much we, we reproduced. So the idea of being in Egypt is like being in the womb. But it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like a parallel to me because... A fetus in the womb is so taken care of and so protected mm-hmm. and so surrounded. And the Jews in Egypt were, were in slavery and, and beaten. And 
and not being able to be uh, and totally not protected. I mean, totally going through very painful. painful okay, I hear you. I, I hear that. I hear that. It's a birth process. But I think there, there is a midrash. There is a midrash that when we came to the sea. One of the verses in the Song of the Sea is Zet Kelevi Anvehu. This is my God, and I will elevate him. So the Midrash says, who said this sentence? It says the children. The children actually pointed. Midrash says that they pointed, and they said, Zet Kelevi Anvehu. This is the God that took care of me when I was in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And then the Midrash goes on, again, however we understand these in symbolic terms, that, that they used to bury the babies to hide them. And they used to make these little tunnels and hide the babies. And that the Shekhinah came and took care of the babies. Mm-hmm. So when they were at the Yam, the children said, Ah! That's the Shekhinah that took care of me in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And they pointed. That's what the Midrash says. Mm-hmm. Again, however we understand this, your point is well taken. You're right, because usually we think of the womb and every the fetus is taken care of. But here, it's we were growing as a nation. The fetus also is a, is a dark, confined place. We're taken care of, but... It is a kind of uh, dark, confined place. It's sort of subjective. It's to our understanding of what's happening in the But again, we're so limited to understanding. That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. Okay, again, in context of this whole paradigm, that's what's brought down. That's his brother. If you listen to the, the, the rest of it, then you'll see how it plays out. I, I hear the questions. I hear the questions. I have to, I have to give them some thought. Then it, it said that the plagues are the birth pangs. That the, the plagues become the, the birth pangs. The splitting of the Red Sea becomes what's called the breaking of the waters, which is. It has to happen for the baby to come out. At some point, the waters have to break. And so going through the yam becomes symbolic. Remember, we are talking in very symbolic language. There's no, no doubt about it. And then, coming through on the other side, the, the yam becomes the birth canal. The water splitting is the breaking of the waters. And Amisol going through the yam becomes going through the birth canal. And coming out on the other side becomes the birth. So that's the, let's call it the four stages of coming out of Egypt as far as a birthing paradigm. Now here, we're we're talking on (coughs) on a national level. Now this paradigm is given over as an explanation of how being in Egypt was a a preparation for birth. We became a people in the womb of Egypt. Notwithstanding the very good questions here and comments. And the plagues and, and, the, and the splitting of the waters and, and going through 
is the actual death. Isn't there a passage that we were admired in this time? In the Chumash itself? Um, maybe it's from somewhere else. Okay. It could be maybe in the Prophets. Yeah. It's not in the Chumash. Okay. But it could be in the Prophets. Mm-hmm. could be in the Prophets. Mm-hmm. Also, this, the plagues doesn't seem to fit the parallel because... The plagues, that, that was not pain for the Jews anymore. That was, that was joy already to see that, <laughs> that their enemies are, are getting their due and, and, and they're not having any of these disorders. I would say the whole, the whole experience of Mitzrayim, the whole slavery, was the uh, birth pain. Uh, experience, uh, uh, yeah. So remember I said I have four or five models of the same events. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, so you're right in that sense. But in here, we're relating, let's say, to the Midrash, it says four-fifths of the Jews died in the plague of darkness. It's not so clear that it was so, like... Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, at least on the simple things. Yeah, ah, now they're getting theirs, and they're very happy and everything, but it, uh, there was a lot of anxiety and anticipation and... Uh, fear of the unknown mm-hmm. and it wasn't so so clear okay now let's look at the same events in a different way here we can look at the we'll call it Seder night or the actual coming out of Egypt as the birth that were born Seder night and we could even connect it to really the day before this will work out even better when we brought the Korban Pesach we brought the Korban Pesach and we're now ready to come out of Egypt we're ready to come out of Egypt and we're told that the coming out of Egypt needed what's called heat of a root from below, an awakening from below. And as we had to do something. So we're told that we did two things, Dam Mila and Dam Pesach. That all the men circumcised, who weren't circumcised, had to be circumcised, and the blood of the carbon Pesach. So that doing on our part was the, the, the formidable act of freedom. On the seventh day of Pesach, which would make it the eighth day from, from carbon Pesach, when we go through the sea, we're told this relates to Brit Milah. Because what happens at a Brit Milah? So, in a sense, the, the skin is clamped and then cut off. And that reveals what's called the Atara reveals the what's called the crown of the organ. So that it's explained that this is symbolic of going through the sea. That the sea splitting in a sense is like the clamping of the skin and the cutting off of the midstream is like the is like the Mila. And then our coming to the other side is like the revelation of, of the breed. So again, it's the same events, 
but I'm just taking different Torahs from different places, all using different paradigms. Now we have three more, two more at least. Now we can look at the same thing differently now, where the 40 years in the desert become the 40 weeks of pregnancy. That we can call, uh, let's say, coming out of Egypt, conception. Mm-hmm. And the 40 years in the desert are the 40 weeks of pregnancy. And then coming into Eretz Yisrael is the actual birth. And then there's one other paradigm that's given over, also very beautiful, that all of history is a pregnancy. All of history is pregnancy. What's called Hevle Mashiach, which are literally called the birth pangs. That's what it means. Hevle Mashiach, the birth pangs of Mashiach. And then the coming of Mashiach becomes the birth. And these are all true. On different levels, because what, what have we been saying? Just to like tie this all together, what we've been saying, and this this just popped in my mind, and never thought about it this way. Just like we say that God recreates the world every day, so freedom also is something that is recreated every day. And it's just like we don't say God created the world one time, and it's on automatic pilot ever since. So the same thing with our own spiritual, psychological, emotional uh, advancement and self-improvement in the world. There is, there's no one time that you, you've made it. It's just, a, it's just a constant recreation. And so therefore, the concept of freedom is very, very tied in to Achorosh HaZelachem. This is the first of the months because... As long as we think that we can get to freedom in one leap, we're still in the trend. Mm. That in itself is a is a confining idea because it's not real. It also feels like the possibility of doing a paradigm of just Moshe, was born in Egypt, created in Egypt, you know, in the sense of being found in the water leading the people across the water, going to Sinai, using the speech that we started out talking about, the sense of the ultimate freedom, to give over. Like, and that man, it just seems like he himself is saying so... Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Remember, we've learned that, that Moshe is an all-inclusive soul. And since we're saying that this whole story is, in a sense, an all-inclusive paradigm for every soul, uh, I never really thought about it that way, but th- there's probably something very deep to that. that you can just take most of life and follow, follow the, the parallels. And maybe, in, that, in line with that, so we can say, well, how do we understand that Moshe didn't come into Israel? Right. So you know what? Maybe, according to just the last thing that we said, 
We're told that if Moshe would have come into Israel, he would have been the Mashiach. He would have built the temple. But God was telling him, it's, it's not time. Mm-hmm. It's like you have the potential. Remember we, we learned in the, the reincarnation that Moshe is the first redeemer and he's the last redeemer. He is the soul of Mashiach. So he, he had it in him. But the world wasn't ready for him right then. So maybe not coming into Israel represents that had he gone in, like the personal paradigm would be up. We could get there. But it's not. It's like... We always read these Parshas um, during the part of the year when it's Martin Luther King's yard site. And he was the other Moshe who had a dream and wasn't allowed mm-hmm. to... He, he, mm-hmm. he, he, Concede mm-hmm. into the promised land, but he wasn't allowed to go in. Huh? Mm-hmm. So, so just to wrap this up with the bracha, I think, I mean, there's, there's so many things we can take from this, but one of the one of the things is, in a sense, in a sense, we have to be warriors when we approach life. And I'm not talking about killing people and you know violence, but just the concept of uh, approaching life without the fear of you know everything I have to do and everything I have to accomplish, and I'm going to fall, and I couldn't do this yesterday, and I was sad yesterday, and what's going to be? And all these fears that we have—that's our mitzvah. And there's something about having a, when I mean a warrior, I mean really just understanding the word Yisrael. Mm-hmm. That you have striven with God and man and you have prevailed. And that, that I think is our fate. And I guess a lot of the success in life is just not to be afraid of, of the challenge and to give it our best shot and know that God understands how human we are but we have to give it our best shot and that we can only do like every single day every day is just this new experience tomorrow, and, uh, right? tomorrow is even another day 